Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where the SaaS leaders who listen to the show are like knights, bold, brave, and a little bit legendary. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who live epic, adventurous lives while building companies of significance. I was speaking to a group of high school and college students about entrepreneurship and leading teams, wrapped up with a Q&A, and the conversation took a weird turn. We started talking about King Arthur. So what in the world does that have to do with leadership? Now, they had some really interesting insights and drew some great parallels in our back and forth made it very tangible and relatable for them. And it really made me think a little bit more, which I love, different and unique perspective. And the legendary tales of King Arthur, the round table is more than just a piece of furniture. It was a symbol of unity, equality, and collaboration. Knights from diverse backgrounds gathered around it and each brought their own strengths, experiences, and perspective. In the legendary tales of King Arthur, the round table was more than just a piece of furniture. It was a symbol of unity, equality, and collaboration. Knights from diverse backgrounds gathered around it, each bringing their own strengths, experiences, and perspectives. And that in itself was really unique. People were way more segregated then by race, by class, religion, profession, geography, genealogy. Were you noble or were you not? And, and quite a bit more but not there at the round table purpose united above all and this concept of gathering varied minds for a common purpose mirrors the modern day practice of collaborating and masterminding with leaders across different industries just as a round table brought together the wisdom of knights from far-flung lands today's leaders can greatly benefit from engaging with peers outside of their usual circles these interactions, much like the legendary discussions at Camelot, provide fresh insights, spur innovative thinking, and expand the horizons of what's possible. Even talking to high school and college students, they expand your horizons. Here's how embracing a roundtable approach to collaboration can transform your leadership and vision. One is gaining new perspectives. Sitting at a metaphorical roundtable with leaders from different industries exposes you to novel approaches and ideas, them too. The diversity in thought can challenge your established beliefs and strategies, much like how the Knights brought different viewpoints to Arthur's table, enriching the collective wisdom. And two is the cross-pollination of ideas. In the tales, the Knights embarked on quests that took them to different realms, gathering knowledge and experiences. And similarly, when you interact with leaders from other sectors, you engage in a cross-pollination of those ideas, where strategy from one domain can become revolutionary solution in another. And number three is expanding the realm of imagination. The stories of Camelot were about envisioning a better, more noble world. When you collaborate with a variety of leaders, it stretches your imagination, encouraging you to think more ambitiously and innovatively. Witnessing the achievements and aspirations of others can elevate your sense of what's achievable. 
In essence, adopting a King Arthur-like approach to leadership, seeking counsel from a diverse set of knights, can lead to more enlightened decision-making. It encourages a leadership style that values diverse perspectives, fosters creativity, and embraces the collective journey towards achieving great things. So let's gather our knights from all corners of the business world and embark on quests that lead to innovation and growth. Our founder on Tuesday was Sahil Patel, CEO of Spiralize. We talked about how to take big swings and get big wins to optimize conversion. Outstanding insights from a two-time CEO. Our expert last week was Reagan Bashara, founder of All Ease Accounting. She brought great finance and tax strategies along with tips to make finance easy. If you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Andrew Bartlow, a titan in HR and talent management with 25 years expertise. He leads Series B Consulting, where he works with HR leaders in crafting effective people strategies in the middle of rapid growth, influencing business strategy and organizational effectiveness along the way. He is a co-author of Scaling for Success. Welcome, Andrew Bartlow. Hey, Andrew, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, Jeff, super happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Love to hear a little bit about your background and, uh, and what you're currently doing in the consulting world around HR, talent management, and how that fits into SaaS. Sure, sure thing. Thank you. Today, I am a operating partner for a private equity company, and I advise their couple of dozen control investments. None of those are SaaS. None of those are tech. They're all air quote, real businesses that make things. So that's one one foot of my world. The, the other foot is squarely in tech and largely in SaaS, where I run a educational program for HR leaders that are in investor-backed, founder-led, tech companies, helping them to be more successful. And I do a host of individual one-off projects with SaaS companies, but largely SaaS, but broader technology industry companies, largely around growth and prioritization and goal setting. Just got off a call before this one with a client around org design and org structure to support their growth. So that's, uh, that's the second foot of my world, one in PE, one in VC. And as I'm a founder myself, I started my yes. own, yeah, I started my own SaaS product in the HR tech world, uh, performance management and employee survey product. So tell us about that product, OnTrack Performance. Yeah, that's right. My belief in dealing with the clients that I'm trying to support is that in this distributed world with people working all over the place, video enabled communication and you know people in lower cost markets, le- less money spent on commercial office space, that performance management will be harder. It'll be harder to figure out who needs help, what people are working on. You can't rely on management by walking around like we used to, like, like I grew up in in the world, especially in SaaS with heavier reliance on technology for technology companies. I think a distributed workforce is inherently more complicated to manage and support. And the tools that are out there, yeah. Yeah, and the tools that are out there, I've found to be inadequate. 
they're too big, they're too complicated, they're automating ineffective performance management processes. Like everybody hates performance reviews for a reason and it just doesn't work. Yeah, so I'm constructing something that's much lighter weight, much more practical, really geared towards a small and mid-sized business and I'm bootstrapping it. It's something that I wish I could have just bought, but it didn't exist. So I somehow got the itch and convinced myself to, to build it. And I have a team of advisors and a development shop and a design studio that I'm working with and have been working with to get that off the ground. I think that's very cool. One, I love bootstrap companies, bootstrap founders. It just, I think that's awesome that you're doing it that way. And you've done it essentially without hiring full-time staff as well. I think that's really interesting. Was that a conscious decision or was it financially motivated or, or some of both? Yeah, for sure both. Would would I love to have millions of dollars in the bank to dedicate to this project where I could, you know, hire multiple, you know, a, a front-end engineer and a back-end, you know, Python developer and a designer that's super high quality? Would that have been great? Sure, it would have been great. But I also didn't want to get a venture capital firm involved early on. I don't see this as being a billion-dollar unicorn business. I see this as being a smallish practical tool that will be really valuable for a certain niche in the world. And so I don't really think it's VC investable. So what are my options? My my option really was what I'm doing right now, which is bootstrap it and figure out how to do as much of it on my own as I can. But one of the things I did was lean into uh, Y Combinator startup school. So I'm not officially a member of the YC cohort, but they have some really great free resources that I've turned to that have helped me find some people that are experienced and interested in doing this work. That's really good. It's a smart way to build, especially not taking VC investment early. You said, you know, you don't feel like it's investable. I'm sure that that if you put it out, there would be people throwing money your way. But but you do give up a lot of control and you give up autonomy and, and so many other things along with that. It comes with strings. So I applaud you for the way you're things. building. It's complicated yeah. enough already. And I think that's a real theme through a lot of my advisory and consulting work is simplify. You don't have to make things as complicated as they can become. And so why would I have an investor involved unless there was something like really obvious that they were bringing to the table for me aside from a check? Sure. Yeah. Well, performance management is something I think a lot of companies don't do well. Uh, sometimes it's sometimes they try. Sometimes it's just to check a box. Uh, but it, it just seems like it's not done really well in aligning goals and compensation and recognition uh, along with those goals. Uh, how do you fix that? And how do you? I love the the, the idea of simplification. This is yeah. something we complicate a lot as well. Yeah, just going back to first principles thinking, like, why do you have performance management? Why do you have performance reviews? Is it all driven by the lawyers and liability and compliance? That's not a great reason. Not a great reason. If you base any sort of performance management around trying to help ensure that people know what's most important right now, that the people that need help can get help, that the goals and priorities are clear and obvious. If that's like the reason that you're doing something around performance, then you can construct a system that makes a lot more sense. And I don't necessarily mean a software system, an approach to communicating with people and following up with them. So I I think that 
really one-on-ones with your immediate manager are a magic wand, are really incredibly powerful, and you want to make sure that those one-on-ones happen and that you have a way to inspect what you expect around that. And that at the top of the house, at at the company level, whether you're 20 people or 20,000 people, that your company-wide goals and priorities are really clear. And that's something that just doesn't happen often enough. We're usually trying to do too many things. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's so common because there's so many things we want to get done. And which one's a priority? All of them. We're going to do these 50 things this quarter. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, but, we, we know it's not going to happen. Yeah, everything's a priority. Nothing's a priority. Right. Try to separate those like key drivers, those critical initiatives from the KTBR items, the keep the business running. Uh, items. So of course, you're going to run payroll. And of course, you're going to handle customer service tickets. And of course, you're going to do a thousand other things. Um, yeah. But what are those like key initiatives that should be like the express train for your organization that stops for nothing and goes as fast as possible? Yeah, I love that. Speaking of complicating the, the process, we had a conversation the other day about OKRs and KPIs. And you have a little different take on, on OKRs. I mean, some people really promote that. Some people really promote KPIs. Some people promote something else. What is your take on that? And what do you recommend maybe that's different? Yeah, thanks for the opening on this. I, once again, if the theme is performance management and trying to optimize the performance of your organization, it makes sense to have the good intentions around providing clarity. What should people be working on? And is that good or bad? And we're on track or off track? That concept makes sense. However, the application of OKRs, and, and that, that's an acronym for those that may not be familiar with it, that stands for Objectives and Key Results. Okay. And it was initially popularized by Andy Grove in 1970s Intel, where he led Intel. And At that time, Intel already had tens of thousands of employees. It was always big, it was already big and mature, and there were jobs that had hundreds, if not thousands of people in them, and they were easily measurable as they're stamping out silicon wafers, right? And so OKRs in that context might make sense. Now, important to understand, Andy was setting OKRs for team and department level not at the individual level. They weren't measuring individuals. They weren't doing it quarterly at an individual by individual basis. It was really at the team department function level. And I think that worked well for them. I know it worked well for them. Like lots of people made lots of money off of Intel and off of investing in Intel and how that found its way into Silicon Valley and into the tech scene of the 2020s is because a lot of the people that made a lot of money from 1970s and beyond Intel and Silicon Valley became VCs, are the, yes. are the operators and angel investors of today. And so with good intentions, they have lifted and shifted an air quote best practice from an environment that is really different than the startups of today. So good intentions, terrible application. Like why would you take a 1970s big mature public company process and drop that into an organization of knowledge workers working in a team that are pivoting constantly, doing subjectively measured work, 
it just doesn't make sense if you think about it that way. But there were really good intentions where the investors sure. were trying to bring a practice that worked in one environment, but probably didn't really think through, is this the right fit for the environment that we're in today at a startup? So what's the answer? The answer is keep it simple. Be really clear, especially if you're in a small organization, uh, be really clear about your organization's goals and priorities at the top of the house. Don't swing the pendulum so far into control and measurement that you're looking at individual goals and OKRs have a 70% target and a 100% stretch and you have multiple OKRs. And by the time you set them, chances are you're working on different things already in a startup environment. So instead of focusing at the individual level and, and complicating things and looking at things monthly or quarterly with OKRs, it's too much. Count on your managers to have effective one-on-ones. So bottom of the house, like frontline, magic wand, make sure that good one-on-ones are happening. And then top of the house, make sure that your company-wide goals and priorities are really clear and thought through. And there's lots of traps around company goals and priorities. I was just working with a client that was trying to bucket their 30 things into three areas, right? Grow revenue and save cost and be a great place to work. Are those actually three priorities? No, those are like three massive buckets that are an excuse to capture all the very many things under them. So right. like actually make some choices about what those most important things are. So I'd say that uh, the opportunity is at the top and at the bottom. And don't get overly prescriptive with the measurement uh, centrally of what every individual is doing. Make sure that your managers are doing what you need them to do. And that they understand what that is, what's expected of them, and, and that that's communicated in those one-on-ones. Yeah, and yeah. that's, hey, surprise, surprise, this is exactly what the tool that I'm building does. It, it uh -huh. enables one-on-ones to happen more effectively. We have an AI note taker that prompts nice. you what are the one-on-one -on -one questions that you should be answering It'll summarize your one-on-one -on -one conversation and drop it into our system so you don't have to type it up as a manager. And it'll immediately identify whether somebody needs help or not, whether there's an off-track situation happening. Yeah, so you just got to make it easier. And, and technology can help us with that. Let's get out of our own way. That's really good advice. Yeah, getting out of our own way. And, and I love the, the take on, on OKRs and, and kind of that I mean, picture when you're talking about like an hourglass. You've got uh, the, the goals at the top and at the bottom. And then that, that middle part is is thin and flexible. And um, so it's it's not uh, prescriptive, as you yeah. said. Yeah, I've referred to it as a barbell as well. So an hourglass. Yeah. yeah and, and I think too much attention is usually is often put at the middle of the hourglass or the barbell where there are these big, complicated processes that are intended to enforce. You know, they're, they're forcing functions. That's what a performance review is. It forces yeah. managers to write down feedback, and then it's centrally reviewed, and we can check to see what the managers are doing. But is that really the most powerful, most useful thing that you can do? It's actually on the ends of the barbell or the hourglass. It's actually at the company level and then the individual, individual level. Yeah. I like the, the barbell picture because if you put the weight in the middle, there's nothing to grab onto. You can't pick that up. 
Certainly not one-handed, yeah. but it's it's having the the weights on the ends that makes it real. It makes it an easy lift. Yeah, so that's well, a very I, good picture. Yeah, you've got me thinking now about graphics for uh, OTP. <laughs> there we go, royalty free. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Complexity. What types of things do you recommend? You said there's some traps, and we talked about some of that. You know, how do, are other ways that we can eliminate complexity? in the things that we're doing and building our businesses so that we can focus on the things that do really matter? Great question. So like how very practically can we make this work? So so one is really hold yourself accountable to finding a shorter list, right? Don't just bucket things. So that's have a short prioritized list. And if you need to stack rank, fine, do that. Whatever method you need to do, you could do your SWOT analysis. You could do a stack rank. You could do a dot exercise with your team. You could take direction from your board, but get clear about your priorities. One of the traps that I've seen, of course, is doing too many things. Another trap that's worth exploring is being too collaborative, is listening to mm. too many voices. Right, 1950s, 60s, 70s, uh, management practices were more top-down, more authoritative, uh, more air quote modern practices have been highly collaborative and engage everybody in the process. And you know, generally, that's a good thing. You get more buy-in, you get more understanding, you get more alignment. However, I'd suggest that I've seen the needle potentially move too far towards too much collaboration, which leads to too many things getting added into the bucket, which leads to decisions actually never really be being made because you're striving for consensus all the time. So too much collab collaboration can lead to consensus building, which ultimately just gums up the machinery of a business. Like you mm. don't get anything done yeah. if, you're, if you try to get everybody to agree or you're agreeing to a really watered down version of whatever it is, like you, most businesses will benefit from being laser-like focused, having a point of view, being really clear on what they're trying to do. But if you're asking everybody, if you're crowdsourcing your strategy, if you're using your employee survey to ask who are we and what type of products do we want to build, that, that's probably not really effective. You know, what, what it takes is a visionary leader to have a point of view. And then be willing maybe to make some edits around the margins. And so take the input and uh, gather feedback. But that should probably only edit your vision by 10% rather than starting from zero and asking your broad team, what should we be doing? So, yeah, yeah that, that's a big trap is, is trying to crowdsource too much. There is so much value in collaboration. That's why we do this in a focused way at Champion Leadership. For broader perspective, you should come hang out with a thousand SaaS leaders in Austin at SaaS Open, March 28th and 29th. Get an inside look at the future of software and spend time with the people who are making it happen. There will be five stages with valuable content delivered in short 20-minute segments. Each one is focused on a different role. SaaS founders, CMOs, heads of product, sales, and engineering. The best way to predict the future is to create it. So come do that with us March 28th and 29th. I'll be speaking at a couple of the sessions there and I'd love to meet you. We're hosting the dinner as well called We Love Bootstrappers while we're there too. So check that out. 
Learn more at sasopen.com and use code CHAMPION2024 when you register to save a couple hundred bucks on your ticket. Like a little gift to you. sasopen.com. I think as, as a lot of times leaders do want to get that input, but that's it. Our job is to lead and it's to, to have that vision and to share that vision and say, here it is. This is core. And then take that, maybe the input I like that around the outside. It's the margins. It's some contributions to that. But it's really to set that vision. And that's what the team buys into. And hopefully you do that really early. So you're building the team that buys into that vision from the very beginning, not try and sell it to them three years down the road of here's who we are. But that's communicated really early on. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think, again, it, it comes with good intentions. Like I had described the... Yeah. Uh, the venture capitalists with good intentions bringing an ineffective process over, good intentions around engaging your team, good intentions around being a kind and collaborative leader. That's great, but don't sacrifice the clarity in vision and purpose. Don't get caught doing too much. Yes, and. Yes, yes, yes leads to a, a list of 30 priorities that may not be right. real. Yeah, you may have your shadow priorities that people aren't actually aware of because you've said yes to too many things. We've had that uh, in development. So we decide here are the, the things that we're going to get done during this sprint. And we get done, and one of those things is done. And then we've got 25 other things that were done. And like, what well, what happened? Where, where did all this other stuff come from? Yeah. And it was just not communicating clearly. Here are the priorities, and that excludes all of these other things. It's like, well, I wanted to do this, and I like this project, and this was fun. And yeah, you end, up, you end up with things that you didn't necessarily intend, and time wasted. Yeah, without that clarity, it's a surprise at at the end yeah. of each sprint. Yeah, surprise and not so much delight. Yeah, and not so much progress along your product roadmap yeah. Yeah. either. A bunch yeah, of stuff so that, done, but not progress. I like that. Yeah, it's a action or effort with without without results. And what I think we as business leaders and entrepreneurs and me as an advisor are trying to help organizations do is make more progress. It's be more effective. Right. Yeah. And so, how do you get stuff done? You make you start by making some choices about what do you need to get done, and making sure people are really clear about that. Yeah. And how many things do you think that are reasonable to, to get done in a, in a given period of time? What do you recommend uh, to your clients? What period of time and, and how many priorities? Yeah. What's the magic number? I, I'll, I'll cop out and say it, it depends. It depends how big and thorny and important some of those things are. Here's one example, though. I, I had a client that had a long list of many things to do and big business, like half a billion dollars in revenue. And they we're having trouble moving forward. But they had one major issue. This is a non-SaaS, non-technical business who had an inventory issue. And so they decided we have such a major P&L overhang. Uh, we are going to focus on nothing but inventory, clearing out all of this inventory that's been sitting on the books. It's got to generate cash. We're going to clear out inventory. We're going to have daily standups. We're going to have weekly status reports with the dashboard with the board of directors, and we're going to fix inventory. And part of that was with my prodding, but they ran with that and they fixed inventory, which enabled them to position themselves for growth again. And did other stuff happen? 
along the way, yes. But that was clearly the biggest, thorniest, existential threat that they had to a business. It was a real cash issue for them. And so it took them six months to largely get out from under it. But now they can have more priorities. Now they can do more things. Now that existential threat has largely been dealt with. I have another client that I'm working with, $100 million revenue multi-unit restaurant business that fell into the trap of 17 things under three or four different big headers. And guess what? Nothing was working. And I'm working with them to try to slim the list. What are, what are the 17 things? Do they all need to be done right now? Yeah, we've got to do all these things. Okay, could you sequence or stage them to say, we're really going to crush this one thing in Q1. And then we're going to line up this next thing is on deck for Q2. And if we don't fix the first thing, maybe that needs to run for two quarters. But if you can prioritize and get really clear on that, like how many express trains can you have? If everything's an express train, they're going to run into each other at some point. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, so... I am copying out and saying it depends, you know, how big and, and thorny the issue is. But I just really encourage businesses, it, whenever possible, make it one thing. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team and The Advantage and a bunch of other best-selling business books, he talks about a thematic goal. Other authors talk about a wig, a wildly important goal, or a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. In, I think some mm -hmm. of this is EOS or Gazelle's language. And generally, it's one. What is that one thing? And if you can successfully tackle that, then go ahead and move on to the next thing. And maybe you're able to accomplish two, three, four in a year. But you probably can't accomplish 17. Yes. yes. But we all want to. And I think one of the, the fears that leaders have is if, if I focus on one, I can't let go of the other ones because that's going to be something that it, I see as critical on the road to success. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the keep the business running items come in, right? Do you need to have everything on your dashboard? Um, do you need to have meetings on and status report all of those items? So judgment is required. And if you're in an organization with any size, if you're at 20 plus people, you probably have some managers that are not just you as the founder, owner, CEO, your managers should be managing their teams and they may have a longer list than you do at the top of the house. If you can be clear as an org, as a whole, what the most important thing or things are, then it just frees up everybody else to make some choices where yes, of course, other things still need to get done but you won't be tracking, monitoring, measuring them with the same level of intensity. I, I just read something about Reed Hoffman's process at uh, LinkedIn, where he would meet with managers uh, once a week if they are not meeting their critical goal. And he would meet with mm -hmm. managers once a month or once a quarter if they were meeting their critical uh, area of focus. So that you like that that's just an example of you might have a slightly different process of what how frequently you're checking in on different types of items. So what are some key questions in those one-on-one -on -one meetings? You said that's a piece of the, the software it, it drives them to to ask those questions. What are some of those questions that we should be asking? 
Yeah, actually, I enlisted the help of my co-author of my book, Scaling for Success. He's Professor Brad Harris, is now the dean of the top management school in Europe, HEC Paris, where they call it HEC. And he and a team of other PhD researchers looked into what are the key questions, the short list of key questions that you can ask uh, workers to better predict uh, performance, productivity, uh, likelihood of attrition, and leader satisfaction. And it, once again, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be 40 different items separated into 10 different categories. Here's the test of whether or not I can name them off the top of my head. So a, a few of the questions, samples. I think our list, we have a core four, just four questions. And we would recommend that you ask these via survey so it's even lighter uh, versus a one-on-one. So one is, did you have a one-on-one with your manager Hmm. in the last month? So you're not even asking the manager to do that. This allows you to inspect what you expect. Did you have a one-on-one? Is that communication happening? And we don't need a narrative explanation. We need a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We need a yes or a no. And and if it was a no, you didn't have a one-on-one, there's probably an opportunity to go in and make sure that happens next time. Here's another question. Was that one-on-one? How was that one-on-one? And the choices are good or not good. We don't need a one through nine Likert scale answer. We don't need a paragraph explaining what you talked about. What we need to know is, yeah, was there some issue? Was there some conflict in your mind as the employee? Did you have a not good one-on-one with your manager? And if so, then maybe me as the leader can go intervene and have a curious conversation. Two more questions in our core four. Do you need assistance? Yes or no? That's it. Maybe that means you need a new mouse. Maybe that means you need a new job or a new manager. Uh, But if you need assistance, then somebody can come in and intervene and have a curious conversation and figure out what you need to be more successful. And last question out out of our core four is, do you feel like your performance is on track or off track? Mm. So it's binary. Again, we don't need word clouds. We don't need lengthy action plans. What we're trying to do is get employees to self-identify if there's some issue. We're trying to identify smoke before fire. So this format, Brad and his team of academics have identified as the core group of most useful questions to figure out who needs help when, and that drives performance and productivity and likelihood to stay and manager satisfaction, all all these many good things. A manager one-on-one, some of their questions as a thought starter would be, what assistance do you need? What has gone well since our last one-on-one? What could have gone better? Very simple questions like that. And that's really the root of it. How can I help? What do you need? What's gone? What's not gone? It's that simple. That's really helpful. I, I love the idea of making it, it simple and binary. Yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. But that also requires uh, psychological safety. Kind of going back to what you're talking about, Patrick Lencioni, five dysfunctions of a team. 
you know, if, if they give it a thumbs down on that meeting, who sees it and what happens next? Yeah. Yeah. This is where we get in our own way a lot of times. And we hear about psychological safety and we all of a sudden you get a bunch of HR people. I'm an HR person myself that say, oh, my goodness, you have to protect people. What are you actually protecting them from? Are you protecting them from assistance? Like you can choose to not answer. You can choose to say things are fine. But here's your opportunity to actually get some help. And if you refuse to act on that, well, shame on you. And if upper level management jumps in and shoots the messenger and you know, somehow leans on the employee that says that they need help, then that employer is going to experience the negative results of that, right? People quit, right? right? So it's in everybody's best interests just to be open about it. And we're simplifying and we're protecting people by not allowing seven paragraph answers it's just a curious conversation of what's going on and what help yeah. could be provided. Yeah. So I think it's a really good way to approach it. Get out of our own way. Stop leaning on anonymity. I mean, that's like the the suggestion boxes where you can write all sorts of terrible stuff about, you know, the company or your manager mm-hmm. and there's right. there there's no ramifications. It's anonymous. Like, yeah. Let's make things fully attributable and then if somebody needs help, we know who to help. That's really good. And I think that happens if they do that and they get help, they get a response and it's, you know, it's a good experience. It just self-perpetuates. So okay. they want to do that more. You know, when things are starting to go sideways, they, they were raising their hand going, hey, I need some help over here. And, you know, the cavalry comes to, to help. Yep. And yep. I think that's a really good place to be. Very empowering for employees to know and, that that's available to them. Instead of designing a process that fits for the bad situations that like protects workers from bad employers, why don't we design a process that like, works for everybody? So that, that's where I say, we need to rethink how this stuff works. And, and it's probably, it, over time, it's been adapted you know, too much, I think, by the lawyers. And, and so let's get back to basics around helping our organizations to function more effectively. So how do you think we measure progress. If we're not using OKRs or KPIs specifically, if some of the things are a little bit more nebulous, a little bit more difficult to have, here's a concrete measure of results. How do we you know, get that performance and how do we measure results? What do we measure on? Yeah. Uh, I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not advocating that we throw out measurements. Like KPIs, key performance indicators are really useful. Like those are great. Yes. Like, have measures. Maybe a measure is completion on time with a certain quality rate. Maybe it's a revenue number. Maybe it's a cost out number. Maybe maybe it's a hiring goal for an organization that's growing or we're cross-sell. Great. Measure it. I'm saying don't get too focused on short-term granularity of those measures. When an individual's performance, so if you have an org of 120 people, how much time are you spending setting a goal for the customer service coordinator who's four levels down this quarter you need to respond to 72 percent of requests within 24 hours and yeah how useful is that what's more useful is having a kpi at the organizational level 
and measuring that and ensure that people know what the big goals are that you're driving towards and that you have you know, healthy one-on-one -on -one conversations so that each each manager and, and their team knows what's most important right now. That, that's another one of the key questions of a one-on-one -on -one is what's most important right now to make sure that you're aligned on what those priorities are. So yes, measure things, but look for that Goldilocks zone. Like you can get too big and too nebulous, too much ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the three bears, you could also get like way too granular, way too detailed at an individual level. Look for that. Maybe this is where we fill in the barbell. Look for that happy medium in terms of goal specificity. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good thought in doing that. In your opinion, what is the most undervalued aspect of HR talent management that organizations should prioritize more? I, that's such a softball. I love it. It's exactly what we're talking about. Human resources management, when it's really effective, is like an internal management consultant. An HR leader can look across your organization and help you as a business leader to understand, are we being clear enough with our goals and priorities? How are we communicating? How are we delivering feedback about what's most important right now and whether we're winning or losing? Too often, HR gets sucked into dealing with an employee relations issue or a legal claim or right. pushing the paper, trying to do benefits enrollment. But the real high quality value adds, often companies go outside to get because the HR people may not have the experience doing the, the goal setting and prioritization and internal comms that are needed. Uh, but if, if you have a good HR person, uh, they can be just absolutely invaluable in being your sounding board as a business leader. That's really interesting because the, the role of HR, I think, has changed from what it was 10 or 20 years ago, where it was more being the, the corporate police and doing the, the payroll and benefits and that kind of thing. And I think it's the, the HR manager of today is much more strategic than it was 20 years ago. What's your take? I, I think there is a lot more use of the word strategic but there isn't as much as there could be recognition of what that really means or understanding of how to do it. And so one of the things that I do is I run an educational program for HR leaders at investor-backed, founder-led tech companies to help them really understand and apply what does it mean to be strategic. That doesn't mean that you stop paying people and you stop right, resolving right. employee complaints. But that's about prioritizing and aligning, figuring out what the business goals and deciding what policies and programs can best support that. Does an employee survey make sense right now? Or does an incentive plan for the sales team make sense right now? Or does leadership effectiveness in your engineering team? Like what, what's most important right now? It's not just pulling out the old HR playbook. The HR of today, I think is still trying to find its footing. I think there are a lot of progressive ideas around employee engagement and empowerment and through COVID, remote work and pay transparency, uh, a lot of social equity issues really reached the, the uh, zeitgeist and, and common uh, vernacular. And so HR has been pulled in a lot of different directions. Sure. Uh, and, and we all want a seat at the table, but we don't all know 
what behaviors that actually requires. And so that's why cons a consultant or advisor like me often gets tapped is because I've been there and I've done that and I can do some of it for them and I can hold somebody else's hand and help them understand what it looks like and do it better themselves. Yeah, I think you're right that it's evolving, but boy, we still have a lot of opportunity. Uh, so if uh, SaaS leaders that are listening today, if they want to take one step toward making their HR, their talent management more strategic and, and giving them that seat at the table, what does that one step look like? How can we do that? Yeah, I, if you'll permit me, I'd actually reshape the question. Is it? Yes. Yeah, it's not about trying to make your HR person happy or trying to make them more effective. Take it, take, elevate it a level. What's the one thing that you can do to make your organization more effective? What's that? And, and that is get crystal clear on your goals and priorities. And if you need help doing that, then test your HR leader to see if they can be an effective sounding board there. Look for assistance from a consultant advisor, an EOS, a Gazelles, whatever tool or resource you want to use. Clarity on goals and priorities is absolutely essential. And potentially your HR leader can help you do that. Have a conversation with them about how do we embed these ideas? How do we reinforce our desired ways of working and our priorities? And if you don't have the person with the right skills to do it, then you know think about where you can get that support. Maybe it's outside, maybe it's changing your leader, maybe it's trying to upskill your leader. Outstanding. Where can we learn more about you online? And of course, get a copy of your book too. Yeah, thanks. I'm really noisy on LinkedIn. Please follow me. I post pretty regularly. Andrew Bartlow, I post under my personal profile. My consulting website is Series B Consulting. B is in boy. Great name. Yeah, thanks. And the book is called Scaling for Success, People, Priorities for High Growth Organizations. So just look up Scaling for Success. And thanks to Columbia University for being my publisher. They, they thought it was strong enough to get behind it. And so it's really targeted towards high growth tech companies like many of your listeners are part of. Outstanding. And we'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. And everybody yeah. needs to, to grab a copy of the, the book as well as it is outstanding. Scaling for Fantastic. Andrew, it has been such a great time having you on the show. Thanks for being on SAS Fuel. Oh, my goodness. Hey, I just hope it was helpful for your audience. That's how I, that's my KPI. How useful am I? So for the audience, hey, if there's any way that I can support you, just please reach out and, and link in. And I would love to hear from you. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks again, Andrew, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and expertise. You can learn more about Andrew at seriesbconsulting.com and be sure to connect with him on social as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And be sure to check us out on YouTube for full video episodes, shorts, training, and quite a bit more. If you're a thought leader, take a minute and share the episode with your network. They will appreciate the recommendation and your status will bump up a couple of notches. And the team and I really do appreciate it too. Everyone who shares this week gets a Dragon Egg phone charger. It's great for nights. 
This egg glows and pulsates as your phone charges, and it might or might not hatch into a virtual dragon assistant. Keep an eye on it just in case. Perfect for your next night meetup. Join us next Tuesday where my guest is James Roth, Chief Revenue Officer of Zoom Info. We talked about how sales has changed, what's working today, and he is in a great position to talk about that, and also the personal growth required to successfully transition from individual contributor to executive leadership. It's a very difficult transition. He has done it beautifully and has some great tips on that as well. Next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have Brady Jensen, a founder who solves the trust problem between marketing and sales. If you've ever had an experience where reality doesn't match the playbook, this episode is for you. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!